Hebrews chapter 3 is where we find ourselves again this morning, and we're looking at a very important passage and application to the Christian life and being family together. Uh, Look with me beginning at verse 12. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know, whether you know it or not, you've got a label. Um, Our culture is filled with labels, and the trend of labeling is, I think, on the rise. People are labeling you whether you like it or not. We live in a culture where we're labeled by demographics, baby boomer, baby busters, Gen Xers, millennials, whatever, 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 political, liberal, moderates, hyper-conservatives, and conservatives. Science, there's evolutionists, theistic evolutionists, creationists, the biblical position, and theology, let's see, Arminians, Calvinists, Biblicists, people who don't want to really take a position, they call themselves a Biblicist. All right, occupations, you have scholars, businessmen, doctors, educators, artists, engineers, craftsmen, home Makers, architects, project managers, techies, military, first responders, builders, maintenance, waiters, administrators, and I probably left some of you out. The list goes on. There's pejorative labels. I'm not even going to dignify those this morning. Labels can be functional, though. They can label demographics, age groups, trends. Um, They can define all kinds of things, personality labels. Here's the question. Do any of these labels really matter at all to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does Jesus care how you are labeled or being labeled? Short answer, I have no idea. I I don't really know. Um, But I do know that as those who have come under the hearing of God's word, even this very morning, you actually do have a label where you are pegged by the Lord Jesus himself He labels you in terms of your response or lack thereof to the word of God. And I would derive these labels from the four categories known as the four soils. In the parable of the soils, the word of God is the seed that is sown. And there are four different soil groups or categories that are based on four different responses to The word of God. So, yes, he has you labeled. What are they? Someone hears the word they don't understand. They're the hard soil. Matthew 13, 19. Satan comes in and, like a bird, swoops the seed away because it falls onto the side road that's hard. Someone hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. No root endures for a while. Tribulation, persecution come. And on account of the word, immediately this person falls away. This is the rocky soil, Matthew 13, 20 and 21. Someone 
Number three, here's the word, cares for the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Matthew 13, 22, this is the thorny soil. Then you have someone who hears the word, understands it, and bears fruit a hundredfold, another 60 and another 30. Matthew 13, 23, this is the good soil. Four soils. All responses to the word of God. The word of God in that section is mentioned six times if I counted right. Four categories, four responses, four heart conditions. These are the people that you're sitting with this morning. You have people who are marked by these four categories because we're all hearers of the word of God. We have hard, hardened people, rocky people, thorny people, and you have understanding people. You have, under, you have people who are responsive And people who are unresponsive. You have unresponsive, shallow, worldly, deceived, and then you have receptive and fruitful. Out of the four soils, only one soil saves. Only one soil is saving soil. It's a responsive soil. So you might ask, why in the world did Jesus break it down into four categories? Don't we just have good soil and bad soil, receptive soil and unreceptive soil? Well, It's because of this. The four soils serve as a warning passage. It's a warning. It's a call for discerning the deceitfulness of your own sin. We do not know how deceitful we are, how deceptive we are, how easily duped we are by our own selves. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is lying to us. It's desperately wicked who can know it. We, we need a grid of discernment so that we can know how to discern where people are or where people are not. How we are supposed to talk to people and how we are supposed to discern people in terms of where they are. How receptive they are being. Because we all want to be soil number four. So important. And we're dealing with this all the time. You have people who are all across the spectrum. You have full-on pagans who are hardened and you know that they aren't saved. And then you have gradations or categories in between, like the scribe who approached Jesus Christ and said, which of the law is the greatest? Tell me about the law of God. And because of his response to Jesus, Jesus said to him in Mark twelve thirty four, you are not far from the kingdom. But let me tell you something, as encouraging as that is to be not far from the kingdom still means that you are totally not in the kingdom and lost. So you can be raised in church, hear the word of God your whole life, fake yourselves out, think that you are soft soil, be hard soil, be not far from the kingdom and completely lost, as lost as a pagan in the jungle who's never heard the word of God ever, 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 and will never hear the word of God in his or her entire life. That's how serious... The soils are, that's how serious the call to be warned regarding the deceitfulness of our own sin is. And this is exactly what our text is doing for us from Hebrews this morning. We need to to know how we are supposed to respond to the people for whom we love. The people within the church, the people within our homes. And our church is filled with people who are in need of healthy interventions, healthy interventions. And here's the principle this morning. Exhortations counteract unbelief. Those first three soils are soils of unbelief. It's a call for healthy 
intervention, healthy exhortations. These exhortations, day after day, are the antidote to a hardened heart, to a self-deceived heart. It's scary to intervene. It's scary to bring up the word of God. It's scary to have a conversation about the Lord Jesus when you know someone really is not soil number four, is it not? So we need to be guided and and taught from the applications of Hebrews to help us along this path because we want all of our friends and loved ones to be soil number four. Again, healthy interactions counteract un belief. So what does this look like? Well, verses 12 and 13 says that we should be part of exhorting or coming alongside brothers and sisters all the time. How often? All the time. All the time. This should be every day or most days we are thinking about or pondering or working towards healthy interactions with people about the Lord. Why? The reason begins in verse 12. Because it could be anyone. Anyone could be self-deceived. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. How evil and unbelieving? With, and, and who are these people? It's within the church that he's talking to here. Okay, It's within the body of Christ. I'm not going to say look left and look right. But it's within the church that we all could be susceptible to an evil, unbelieving heart that is in the lead of our lives, leading us astray. It's the enemy within. It's it's the dark soul that's inside. Now you say, but I'm a believer. I don't have that anymore. Be not deceived. We're still affected by our own flesh and by our own depravity. We are until we are glorified. And I'm going to work through the the difference between a saved person who needs to be warned and an unsaved person that needs to be warned. But the point of the soils is is that we need discernment because this is kind of thin sliced in our own experience as we talk to people, isn't it? It could be any one of us. We don't want to underestimate the power of being susceptible. In verse 12, it says, take care. That's blepete. It's look up. It's the word see. You need to look around. It's the coach calling from the sideline to the the offense or the defense. It's running the floor in basketball. You need to have your head on a swivel. Head on a swivel. Look around, look around, look around. That's the call here. That's the call of the Christian to be alert. Lest there be any of you. Any of you. That means this could be any one of us. Everyone is called to be circumspect, to keep their head on a swivel. Paul told Timothy, guard your life and your teaching and your doctrine for your own soul's sake, 1 Timothy 4, 17. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and you've heard this probably before, Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention. Again, it's that be alert in that same section, verse 31, Acts 20, 31, be alert. He was saying, I admonished you. I was with you night and day for three years, admonishing you with the scripture, teaching you the whole counsel of God through, through tears. And in Acts 20, 28, he says, be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. He's talking to the leaders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 
I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. All right, who are the wolves here? There are those who come from the outside, but there are also wolves that come from the inside. Now, listen to this. Fierce wolves, they come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise. He's prophetically saying that some of the leadership that is either going to come on or is already existing, like a Judas Iscariot is going to come in from the inside and try to split this team apart. From among your own selves will arise men. What are they going to do? Speaking twisted things. They're going to twist the scripture and to draw away the disciples after them. That Greek word apostasy or apostatize is found there in that word draw away. People will twist the scripture to draw people away. The church always breaks apart from the inside out. That's what Paul is telling these elders to protect themselves against. Remember the night of Passover when Jesus said, the one for whom, you know, raises its heel against me that that I'm dipping the morsel with around the Passover table, this person will betray me before this night is done. What did the disciples do? Did they say, oh, it's Judas. Yeah, I see that. I got, we got it. No, this is not crystal clear in their minds. They begin to become very circumspect and say, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? That's what Christians do because we know our hearts are deceiving us and they need to be managed. And we want to to help other people and we want to be helped by other people within the body of Christ so that our pulse rate does not flatline. And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm just talking about the human responsibility of our sanctification in life, our responsibility for each other, our responsibility for ourselves so that our heart will go lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. But if you start to stray out of church, you start to stray away from truth and teaching, then you might be exposing the fact that you were never alive in the first place at all. And that's the, the technicalities of a text like this, but don't miss the forest for the trees. There's a clear warning here. There's a warning text that we are to be alert, to be heads up about our lives, and to be heads up for other people within the body of Christ. Remember King David said, you know, this would never happen to me. I'm a man after God's own heart, right? This is the lie of our own heart. And then he committed adultery, then he had Uriah killed, then he was not permitted to build the temple, being a man of war who had shedded too much blood, shed too much blood to be qualified to do that, First Chronicles 28.3. So it could be anybody, but my second sub-point is it might take everybody. It might probably take all of us to make it to the finish line. Look at this, verse 13. But exhort one another... Every day, this is second person plural, you're to exhort one another. We're to take up the ministry of exhortation. It's a ministry, it's a mission to exhort. You say, what's my spiritual gift? What's my calling in life? What's my job in the body of Christ? Well, you can have all kinds of very good jobs working the soundboard or ushering or setting up, taking down, providing the food, teaching. You can do all of these things, but don't do it to the neglect of the clear call to exhort one another. The whole idea of being an island unto yourself or isolation, where you just fall away in isolation. You, you don't come to church. You say, I meet God outside in nature. I mean, nobody ever says that here, right? People say it all the time here. Come on. People are always forsaking the assembly, and isolation doesn't work. How can you exhort people or be exhorted by people if you don't show up? 
You have to put yourself in an arena to fulfill this mission because it takes everybody. We need everybody in our lives to be watching and walking with us. The word exhort is pericolete, which means to urge strongly. But it's a picture of coming alongside someone, like that word pericoleo or periclete that can be a synonym for the Holy Spirit who comes alongside of us. How does Jesus come alongside people? How does the Holy Spirit speak to you? Well, one unique and clear way that the Holy Spirit speaks to you and Christ himself is speaking to you is through his body where you come alongside people. It's the great picture of when you're running in um, you know, a sports context, right? Many of us did it as younger people, right? But you remember running and running and starting to huff and puff and feeling your breath leave you and your lungs begin to burn. But then out of the corner of your eye, you see a coach and he's running alongside you on the sideline. And in the back of your mind, you hear in your ear, keep going, run, get back on defense. And if it's a coach that you loved, even it's even stronger, right? I'll get back. I will. I will. And you push beyond the burn and you work harder because you're hearing someone who's coming alongside you, who's dancing down the sideline, who loves you, who's invested in you, who's saying you worthless peace. No, 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 no. Keep going. Go. And you, and you get, you get up for the game and you work hard. And that's what we do in the body of Christ. When someone loves someone, they'll do this. You become their cheer, cheerleader. You become someone who will do this. And not just do this on Sunday morning, though it's important to do that. You do it throughout the week. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 uses the same word to exhort, by the way. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit. People get in bad habits. It's the habit of some. But here it is, parakaleo, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, as you see it drawing near. Encouragement might be a a healthy synonym for exhortation. Both English words uh, come back to the same Greek word. You're encouraging a brother. You're encouraging a sister. You shouldn't feel like public enemy number one just because you're saying, hey, where have you been? I haven't seen you in a while. Why don't you come to church anymore? I haven't seen you at Bible study in a while. Your, Your countenance seems drawn. You seem down. Hey, let's get together. How have you been in times with the word and with the Lord? And who are your friends? This is, these are the bumper rails of the Christian life. This is your service opportunity within the body of Christ. You should sense the leading of the Holy Spirit. Who am I supposed to be in Bible study with? Who am I supposed to give a call to? Who should I text? Who are you laying on my heart to do this work for? Because this is what the scripture uses. It's the human responsibility side of sanctification. God does the work, but he does it through us. Not only could it be any of us, and not only will it take every one of us, it'll take every day, every day. Look at this verse 13 again. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember last week's principle that I brought up? A heart left to itself will what? Harden itself. 
It's this calcification process where it just, it's like an autoimmune disease where it's attacking itself. The Greek word uh, sclerunte or hardening is there and it reminds us of that disease I mentioned last week which is a skin hardening disease, scleroderma. It's, it's where the hardening of the outward um, skin layer of your organ is, is killing the organ from the outside in. And that's the dynamic that's happening in the spiritual heart that's left alone. If you leave a heart by itself, it will harden. But there is a clear application of how not to do that. Come alongside, exhort one another on Sunday morning, and that will be enough. Is that what that says? Every day, every day. It is a, it is a lie and it is disobedience if you as a parent say to yourself, well, I've said my piece to my child, now I'm going to let it go. That's not biblical. I know that's getting in your kitchen a little bit, but I had to get in my own kitchen, right? I've got six of them. You, you got to hear and feel the word of God. You say, yeah, but I'm, I'm powerless now. Well, that's just because your kids play poker face. Even your adult children, they'll play poker face with you. But as you speak the word of God, you're the person that nurtured them. You're the person that gave to them. You've given to them more than anybody else in their entire lives have given to them up to a certain point. And in the back of your mind, you got to think God has designated, designated me to do this mission. And as I speak the word of God, the Holy Spirit is going to beat them up on the inside, even if they don't show me any of that on the outside. That's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 7.14 says, Otherwise, children are unclean. But when you have a believer in the home, they are called holy. And that's just speaking to the splash effect power of the gospel that's within the witness of a believer who is in the home. I never forget when I worked construction crew. I know I've told you this before. I had one summer where I worked with uh, my hands uh, in a significant way, um, working construction on a framing crew. It was in a hot part of, uh, you know, Hampton Roads, Virginia, and it was an interesting summer. What I remember most of all was being yelled at the whole time by this crew boss who would just yell at me, yell at me. It was like this Blackbeard the Pirate. He could scale buildings and, you know, hang off of rafters and swing hammers and shoot nails at you and, I mean, throw wood at you and, you know, pick up that pile. And I graduated to the tool belt, which didn't help me at all, you know, and, and I was trying to, to keep up. But I found out later that he was, he was pretty upset with me and my friend because we were Christians and he had married someone who became an on-fire Christian and he did not know what to do with it. Uh, he, was, he was able to boss us all around, but apparently his wife's spiritual influence in the home was super powerful. He got so mad at me one time, he grabbed my wrist, put it up against the wall, and took a nail gun and said, let's play Jesus. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, but he was mad because of his wife. He was mad because of the accountability, and I would hear him bemoan that at lunch break and talk about that. She was so great. She was so fun. And... Now, now what is she? And that's the power that's going on in the home when we give the word of God. Now, wives, you're supposed to win your unbelieving husband without a word, but there's still the ministry of encouragement. There's still, doesn't mean that you rain fire down on your child's head or your spouse's head. It's living the life. It's being unashamedly a Christian. It's, it's speaking truth in love. It's doing with gentleness, with gentleness, not being preachy for sure 
But it takes daily. It takes trust in the truth. You say, well, I'm ineffective. I'm unaffected. Well, let me encourage you in this way. Don't forget that you have the Bible when you're trying to reach someone for Christ. Appeal to the Bible. It means you have to read the Bible. It means you might have to go to a Bible study and learn the Bible. You might have to be taught the Bible. But use the Bible. You say, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel skilled. I I don't know the Bible. But if you just think about a couple Bible verses and say, hey, I want to just bring this up. You know, the Bible says dot, dot, dot. Then you're basically using the Bible as a third-party witness in the discussion rather than just going head on and saying, I think you should do this and this is my opinion and this is why. It's because I've lived so much better than you. No, take the pressure off of you and put it on the Bible when you discuss these things with people. Hopefully that was helpful. I want to build now the bridge into verse 14. Verse 14. This is, uh, again, the principle of exhortations counteract unbelief and it will take you... An all-the-time mode to win people to the Lord and win people back to the Lord. But it takes all of your life to do this. This is point two. It's all the time, but it's also, and that's the day-to-day-to-day-to-day-to-day, right, work. But then you have to be in it for the long haul where it takes all of your life. And that's what verse 14 is beginning to emphasize here, the marathon race. It's true faith as a Christian runs the marathon. And it takes this faith-filled marathon runner to be able to really lead people along the path of righteousness. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Faith runs the marathon. In my experience, a lot of people will ignore a verse like this altogether because of the word if. They say, well, that doesn't sound like the the idea that you're saved by grace through faith alone, that it's God who saves you. I didn't save myself, and once I'm saved, I'm always saved. All of that is true. But true saving faith will run a marathon. True Christians are marathoners. They are. They are. That's what this is saying. True faith will run, however fast or however slow, to the finish line. Faith without works is dead. The works here is being a runner. It says you have come to share in Christ. That means something happened in the past tense. You, it's a perfect tense here. It, something happened to you where you became a partner with Christ, a partaker in Christ, and then that reality carries forward. And this, if indeed you hold our original confidence firm to the end, again, is a warning. It's a warning. And it's not just a warning to examine your fruit in the past. This is a warning that says, look future. It's not retrospective. It's actually prospective, prospective, forward. It's, it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's laying aside the things that encumber you, looking to the author and perfecter of your faith. You're running the race with endurance. You're running, looking to Jesus. And our job as we call people to come back to the Lord or come to the Lord is to call them to be a marathoner with us. Run with me. Run with me looking ahead. You might be down right now. You might be hurting right now. But get up. 
and run. That's the call here. And it's something that we shouldn't ignore. I think looking at a warning passage like this in light of the soils that we talked about can be very helpful. Again, warning passages, ask yourself, which soil am I? They beg that question. All four soils have heard the gospel. Again, we have outright rejectors. We have quick responders with joy and then nothing. We have worriers. We have worldly people who are the thorny soil who get freaked out and sort of stop following Jesus all the way. People get ensnared by wealth and say, I want wealth, not Jesus. People do that all the time. And then you have people who are the real thing who say, I might be limping along, but I'm still going to go forward with the Lord and I'm going to bear fruit. That's what we're talking about. Exhorting and coming alongside people in light of that. Let me say it this way. Here's how the first soil might talk. Say, I've heard the gospel long time ago. I was a little boy or a little girl. And I went with it because my parents wanted me to, right? I was good with it. Got me in good with dad and mom. But really, I was just faking it. I was just faking it. Satan went in and snatched that sea right away. That's soil number one. Soil number two. I ran for a while. Life got hard. Started to do me wrong. And my friends that I used to have, once I really became outward about my faith, they left me and wanted to have nothing to do with me. And so I didn't have any more friends. And so I dropped out of the race. I dropped out. I tapped out. You know, I said, I want, I want to sit on the bench. The third soil. I was running down the Christian's path. I hit my stride. I saw a way for me to alleviate life's pains because I could make more money. Especially if I compromised, I figured out I had to choose one way or the other, either all in for Christ or more of a worldly life. So I went that direction and I took a detour. First John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been, been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These are the first three soils. These are soils for our discernment. I know it's hard to grab a hold of these things and apply these things and to load these categories in our hearts, but we must do it for the sake of people whom we love. Don't rationalize away the real responsibility that we all have to exhort, to come alongside and to do it lovingly. Here's the last soil, and this might be you. I might not run as fast as the fastest runners, but I run. Nevertheless, I'm not going to stop. I never stop. There might be seasons where I seem to come to a complete stop, bent over, right? Gasping for air, barely able to take another step. I hear a voice, though, from the sidelines shouting out to me, and it's your shepherd's voice don't quit. Keep going. Right? Catch your breath. Push on one more round. So I do. It doesn't matter how long it will take me. Ultimately, I'm never going to stop running. Does that help you make sense of a verse like this? This is not some conditional verse where you're trying to earn your salvation by running. It's just hearts that are alive. Do this. 
they want to run and they want to keep running. They want to see the finish line, the author and finisher of their faith. They want, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. They want that. They're looking for that. It's not perfection. It's just a direction that you're going forward. It's a warning if you don't want that. It's a warning to you if you're just stopped on the sideline and you don't really care and you're here for other reasons. This is a warning to wake you up. It's a great thing to be a partaker with Christ. And verse, verses 15 through the end actually just lodge this warning all the way in with what happened to the first generation of Israel. You remember them, and we talked about them last week, and we, we're, we're talking about faith that runs a marathon and faith that finishes well. Well, the first generation of Israel was laid low in the wilderness, and they did not finish well. Verse 15 restates what was stated already in verse 7 of chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's repeated here in verse 15. And in chapter 4, verse 7, it'll be repeated again. These are the words of David. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the warning. You could harden your heart. You could hear the word of God and it could bounce off. And you could let your heart go. And let yourself go spiritually and you will harden yourselves. Don't do it. Again, this is a bridge back to the story of Israel's rebellion. And you have five rhetorical questions that are given in rapid fire to recount what they did and didn't do. It says, for who, verse 16, were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? The author is begging, who are these people? How, how privileged were these people? Israel is like the premier church. They were the ones that splattered the blood on the doorposts. They were the ones who were spared by the death angel. They were the ones who marched out a million five hundred strong under the leadership of the premier leader named Moses. The Christ figure in the Old Testament leading them to the promised land, leading them to take a conquest journey into the promised land, an 11-day walking journey to Kadesh Barnea that they could have gone right in through Jordan into the promised land. This warrior's march was met with defeat, with doubt. But the idea is, hey, take heed. Don't think that you stand. In your own strength, pride comes before the fall. You could be chopped down just like those in the wilderness were. The point is that they were disobedient. They were hard-hearted in their unbelief. That's what chapter 3, verse 7 is saying. And then they're hard-hearted in chapter 3, verse 15 and following because of their disobedience. Their disobedience is a lack of faith. What's happening inside will eventually come out. It's what it looks like not to finish well. Who was it that rebelled? Verse 16. Well, they heard from God. They heard from their premier leader and they rebelled. They were hard soil. Number two, who provoked the Lord for 40 years? Look at verse 17. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? This is this first generation again. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Their sin, what was their sin? Grumbling, complaining, and doubting. 
They had rocky soil. When life got hard, when the Egyptians were coming, their root was not deep. It was a rock bed underneath an inch of soil, and it went down for a second. It looked like they were going to manifest faith, but really, they were rocky soil. Number three, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Rest being a picture of heaven. Rest being physical Canaan. But to those who were disobedient. They're the thorny soil. They had bought the lie that Egypt's wealth would be better than God's promise. And God swore an oath on himself that they would not enter into the rest. Laid low in the wilderness. Only Joshua, Caleb, and those who were 18 and younger made it in kind of an Old Testament picture of the age of accountability. It's, it's the picture of grace. It's the picture of growing up in church and watching other people fall away and say, that's not going to be me. Sometimes it's good to be the younger sibling, right? See the mistakes that you don't want to make. Five rhetorical questions. This generation did not persevere because they did not believe. Because of unbelief. Look at verse 15. So we see... That they were unable to enter. Why? All of this boils down to one thing. Unbelief. They didn't believe. The call to the Christian life is as simple as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? I mean, you, you can be a four-year-old, whatever, younger, and just believe and be saved and be regenerated. <laughs> one theologian you talked about, John the Baptist leaping in the womb. I think that's a stretch in terms of a parallel to how young someone can believe, but it makes an interesting picture, doesn't it? So why do people fall away? Why, why reject the simplicity of this? Because believing in Christ comes with a major cost. The narrow road is leaving the world behind. It's fighting your flesh for life. It's taking on persecution for life. And it's a satanic attack that you have to resist the devil and he will flee from, right? That's your whole life. It takes your whole life to get to the finish line. And while it is today, the word today there in the text is speaking of your lifetime. You hear the word of God every day. You're supposed to exhort people every day. As long as it is called today, which is your lifetime, your whole life going to heaven. That's the Christian's life. It's to believe, not be those who fall away in unbelief. And while it is still today, there is hope. Remember, healthy exhortations, let me change it. Healthy interventions are what cause faith or counteract unbelief. It's like this. It's like where your your car is over on the side of the road. I was really uh, praying as I was driving to uh, the Alaska Airlines Center on Friday, I think it was, and my gas was kind of low, and I was looking at, was looking at uh, you know, the timing of getting there. I was trying to get to the event on time. I was thinking it's 11 degrees. That'd be really bad to be stranded on the side of the road. And have you ever been stranded on the side of the road with a battery that dies, right? And somebody bail you out with their jumper cables, and they come along. That's, that's like an exhortation. It's like somebody coming alongside and just sparking you, just, just giving you some help. That's parakaleo. That's what we're called to do. We do it all the time, and we do it for all of life, 
And that's what it takes. It counteracts the enemy within. It's an intervention. And this is how Jesus does it. He does it through you. Don't forget that. Jesus could be calling you to come alongside somebody and he will speak through you to that heart and then jumper cable and the person is stimulated back into the path. You say, how long, O Lord? Well, just do it your entire life, just your whole life and leave the results up to God.